3: Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and
1: find yours.
4: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to sure. Four hundred and fourteen. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'll tell you what's coming, dear. Sure. First up is we have an interview with Seth Shostak, who is an American astronomer, currently senior astronomer and director for the SETI Institute. How cool is that? We're talking about a certain star far, far away. Then we have two stories in today's show. We have A Lonesome Speck of Home by Beth Kato. Then we have Mushiga in Time by Rachel K. Jones. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And as a little, little teeny surprise there, right at the end, right past the end, right past the, the kind of, out, you know, the outro where we play the music. Right past that, I'm going to stick on my tales of my little two days away holiday. So, I didn't want to put it in the show. I just wanted to kind of stick it on the end if anyone's interested. So, listen to right at the very end of the show. Listen to the outro playing out that music. And then you pick up it again. My little adventures with a being away for a couple of days. Very interesting. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT industry, helping you with your little wars and troubles, which are to you massive, which are to Octagon Technology, not that big at all, really. No, shop, get it fixed. A big thank you to Clive and Diane, and a big thank you to Clive and Diane for the whole year supporting Starship Sova. This is the last show that we have their generosity, you know, supporting the show. We are on our own there now after today's show. So do support Starships Over with a Patreon award. You know we need to kind of keep the whole network going, and we haven't got you know the likes of Oxygen Technology. Like I say, a massive thank you to them, Clive and Diane for doing this support. But we now we're on our own. The the, the supports have been kicked away. <laughs> the stabilizers have been took off. Like hope, hopefully we'll be able to survive, you know, with your kind donations. Come over and there's a Patreon link there, so thank you so much. First up is a little interview I did with Seth Shostak, and at the end, the end of the interview, or you can go now if you want to do. Come over to the, uh, have a look on your phone. Come over to the kind of the actual page on your phone where we're playing in whatever podcast provider you know player you've got, and grab because Seths give us some more kind of. Uh, further more information about, you know, this kind of, what I'm talking about in the interview. And you can, like say, you can grab this PDF there about an alien megastructure plans. And, like see say, Seth's kindly given this there. So that's like a freebie to grab if you kind of come over, join the newsletter, and you can grab that free alien megastructure plans documentation. Hmm. So, like I say, this interview I carried out with Seth, and I'll just... Really enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? Lovely, lovely guy. So, Seth, bring us up to speed then. On I know because I know this sounds you know a little bit kind of tongue in cheek, but I'm certainly not meaning it to be. But bring us up to speed on this so-called alien megastructure that the every the internet's a buzz with.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, this was a a star that was observed by NASA's Kepler space telescope, and uh, it's a kind of nondescript star. It's a little bit bigger than the sun. Uh, It's maybe, I don't know, 30% greater diameter. It means it has four or five times as much luminosity. It puts out a lot more light than the sun. But the really interesting thing about it is it was observed to occasionally dim, and not by a little amount. Uh, It would dim by, you know, 20% or more. Now, you know, if you look at the sun continually, not, not a good idea, but if you were to do that, you'd see that the sun doesn't change its brightness by even 1%. I mean, it's always the same. But this star was getting darker. So the suggestion was something is blocking the light from this star occasionally. And, you know, there are a lot of, if you will, naturalistic explanations, things that have to do with comets or dust or who knows what. But there's also the possibility that there's a society on a planet around that star that's built something big that's blocking the light. So that's why it's been exciting.
4: So Seth, how did you come to, to hear it? You, you know, is it like a phone call in the middle of the night from one of your astronomer friends or
0: Well, actually this the, the the results for this star were well known and published by the astronomers working on it. And here at the SETI Institute, we actually have uh, I don't know, at least a half dozen people who work uh, on data reduction for the Kepler space telescope, of course. So they knew about it anyhow, and they 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 don't call us in the middle of the night; that would wake you up. <laughs> they just tell you during the day.
4: So um, I've heard. Then you've you've kind of you've got your telescopes. This Allen Telescope Array is now kind of looking at that certain section of the the galaxy. Can you give us a little bit just just to bring you up to speed on what that what actually is the Allen Telescope Array?
0: Yes, well, indeed. I mean, there is this possibility that it really is a home to aliens. Now, honestly, I would bet you, uh, you know, a, a, a cup of coffee that that's not true, because history tells us that every time you think that aliens are involved in some cosmic phenomenon, you're wrong. Almost well, every time. Now, I'm going to say almost every time, but it isn't almost every time. It's been every time. So the historical record's very clear on this. And I suspect that's what's going to happen here, that we're going to figure out what it is. And it'll be something completely natural and, and not involving aliens at all. But nonetheless, I mean, it's worth checking out because you don't want to, you know, sort of drop the ball and say, well, I'm not even going to bother to check that thing out. So we are using the Allen Telescope Array. That's uh, an array of antennas, radio antennas. That was built by the SETI Institute and uh, is located about 300 miles north of San Francisco in the Cascade Mountains of California. 42 antennas in a big array. They work together as a team. And we've been using it for the last two weeks to, uh, you know, see if there are any, if you will, uh, artificial, I I don't know, you know, technological, deliberately broadcast signals coming from the direction of this star so you know we're checking it out the data are almost reduced and you know then we'll publish the results Do
4: just have to you know when there's something like you know you let's go let's use the kind of allen array telescope is there really like a meeting with yourselves where you say right you know i think it's now time to for for us to kind of start taking this seriously
0: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it didn't require a meeting. There was just an email or two. Let's, you know, start observing this tonight. I mean, it's such an obvious target that it doesn't require a whole lot of discussion. Uh, Otherwise, you're looking at, you know, kind of random stars that uh, might be known to have planets or that are very close to, you know, our own solar system, that sort of thing. But look, this is this is a target that's a little more interesting. Everybody's excited about it. And uh, consequently, it it wasn't a big decision you know, we better go look at this. I'm, I'm sure anybody with a big telescope is looking in the direction of this star.
4: Why is it then, Seth? Why are we so excited about this? Because surely we get like these kind of phenomenons quite often.
0: Well, um, yeah, I don't know about quite often. I'm not sure how frequent that is. But uh, it's true that there are always exciting things in the sky that are discovered. I mean, you know, two weeks ago it was water on Mars. And actually that that's a very exciting result because it tells you, if you're going to look for life on Mars, where well, you ought to look for it. And that's something we didn't know before. So, you know, there, there's always new, new information. There are always new discoveries. Uh, as far as, you know, for SETI work, where we should point our antennas, those are a little less frequent. But nonetheless, we know something now we didn't know even five years ago. And that is a very high fraction of the stars in the sky have planets, essentially all of them, but at least 70 or 80 percent. But more than that, we now know that maybe one in ten stars has a planet where you could have life, and that's something we didn't know before.
4: I was just wondering: had we not, in not to put a, you know, bring it down a little bit, but had we not kind of just given up of, of kind of finding any anything in our galaxy? Because it always seems like we you know, it's it's disappointment after disappointment.
0: Well, uh, I, I think that uh, that's sort of like uh, telling Captain Cook you know, uh, a couple of weeks <laughs> into its <laughs> his third voyage, you know, you haven't found anything in the first two weeks, Jim. You better give it up. Why don't you come back and enjoy the great food here in England? Uh, he, uh, you know, he, he had barely started, right? And that's true for SETI, too. We've only looked at a very tiny number of star systems. So to give it up would be a little bit uh, early days, a bit premature.
4: Yes. No, don't don't give it up. Don't give it up. So, just out of curiosity then, Seth, if it's, let's say, if it's not alien, you know, what what
0: could it be, you know, in the kind of real world terms? Well, there are all sorts of things it could be. And in fact, the people who discovered this, and they were led by uh, this postdoctoral researcher at Yale University, uh, they made a laundry list of things they thought it could be. They, they didn't include aliens in their list, by the way. But anyhow, uh, you know, it could be... Uh, Uh, dust in that star system that occasionally gets between us and this and the star. It could be their favorite explanation was it was a uh, a herd of comets, if you will, or at least the remains of comets that were disturbed when a star passed close to this star, another smaller star. And that stirred up the comets that that happens. And in fact, if you look at the moon, you see it's covered with craters. That's because something like that happened in our solar system at 1.2 brought a lot of the comets to the uh, to the regions where the Earth is, and in fact, the oceans may be the result of that. But in any case, uh, you know, these kinds of natural explanations that have to do with uh, you know astronomy and not uh, and not aliens have been offered. But we don't know which, if any, of these is the correct one. It's very difficult because this star is quite far away; uh, it's almost fifteen hundred light years away, and that makes it, you know, I don't know, what is that? I don't know. If, that's hundreds of times farther away than the nearest star. That's so far away that you can't just take a big telescope and look at it and actually see any planets or anything like that. It's very hard to investigate this particular star system. So it may take a while before we figure out what it is. Meanwhile, astronomers have been very clever at coming up with ideas. One gentleman has published on the web his idea that it's due to the fact that this star is a little bit uh, squished and squashed, and that means it has different brightnesses depending on – Where you are, and maybe a big planet blocking the light from the stars, all that's involved here. We don't know, and we won't know until we uh, do more work.
4: What's I'm just I'm I'm interested about SETI as well. What's it like in there, Seth, when something like this kicks off? You know, is is there a kind of whole excited buzz there, or is it just you know the day job and we just got to get on with it?
0: Well, I think that most people here tend to uh, moderate their enthusiasm for this because they know. The historic record; they know that every time this sort of thing has happened in the past, it's turned out to be completely natural. I mean, in the 1960s, the uh, the astronomers at Cambridge in the UK, you know, found a a flashing radio source in the sky, uh, and they they called them LGMs, little green men, for a while, mostly as a joke. Uh, they got sort of excited, but you know, it turned out. Then they found others, and it turned out that the LGMs were in fact what are now known as pulsars, completely natural things. Uh, So, you know, there there are many instances of that. So I think that, in fact, the idea that people are running around all excited about this star, well, we are observing it. We're doing our job. But, you know, if you asked each one of the people involved here, do you think it's going to turn out to be aliens? I don't know that anybody would say that because they they know the historical record uh, kind of mitigates against that. But on the other hand, if you don't look, you'll never find anything. So, of course, we, we keep looking.
4: Well, I'm guessing from what you've just said there, then, it's SETI's job must be just as
0: important to kind of quash wild rumours, you know, and give, give the people the, the right answer. Well, I mean, we're just looking for the evidence. And, and, and the, whether we find it or not, if we don't find it, it doesn't mean there isn't anybody there either. I mean, obviously, maybe we've tuned to the wrong part of the dial or maybe this star being so far away, the signals are much too weak for us to pick up. That's always a possibility. So it doesn't rule anything out. The only thing it can decide is if you do find a signal, then you know something. Then you know something. And of course you do this. I mean, that's that's the nature of this experiment. The idea is to find signals, not to, you know, just say, oh, well, we're not going to look.
4: Seth, I'm um, again. This, you know, I'm not tongue in cheeky. here, but just say, just say that there is something, and you find something. What is the protocol, at SETI? You know, is there a kind of a big red button to press, and you
0: know, all hell breaks loose, or how would you would you go about announcing something like that? Well, to begin with, it's not one of those deals where suddenly you say, "My God, we've done it." Right? It doesn't work that way. What happens is you find a signal that's persistent. And it looks like the kind of thing you're hoping to find. But before you would believe it, you would call up somebody at another observatory and say, hey, look, um, would you mind tuning your receivers to more or less this spot on the dial? We won't tell you the exact frequency, so not to bias you and see if you find something at this level. We give them, you know, a flux level. And uh, and, and if they confirmed it, then you can say, well, at least it's not, you know, a software bug in our system or local interference or anything like that i think that it would take three or four days before you would be confident that it was truly what you were looking for in that case it would be a huge story and our our experience is whenever we get false alarms like this the media tend to start calling up right away
4: from your point of view then seth how do you feel about this are you excited or is again is it just you know i mean you don't want to get too excited just in case
0: I try to be realistic. Uh, I, obviously, it's exciting to do this, and we've been spending a lot of time, you know, uh, writing up a paper about our observations and so forth and so on. I mean, there's that. There's just real work. Uh, but you know, I, as I say, I uh, it, it's it's like getting a phone call in the you know early in the morning from somebody who says they're from Microsoft and they're going to fix my computer. I could get excited about that, but. <laughs> You know, or, or maybe I'd get excited about an email saying that some Nigerian princess has left me a lot of money. I mean, I could get excited, but I, I try to remain realistic.
4: When when does it come round to it, then Seth? When you've, you've kind of tried every avenue, do you know? What I mean, who kind of makes the decision to kind of pull away, say the Allen Array Telescope? You know, who's is that your job?
0: Well, it is in a way, but the 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 deal is, I mean, you look at it with the equipment that you have. And you could spend, you know, uh, I mean, we're going to spend, we already have spent two weeks looking at this, and we will probably continue to do that for a while. But after you've looked at it for a few weeks, you've exhausted the capabilities of the instrumentation you have. It does, doesn't really help to keep looking at it, it doesn't improve your sensitivity uh, at all. So, you know, at some point you say, okay, well, we can't find it with this instrument. If there is a signal coming from there, it's at a level that we can't detect. And then you write up, you know, the the limits on your own observations. And other people with different antennas will try different uh, approaches to trying to find the signal. You can be sure. I mean, you don't don't look at it forever. Uh, You know, Galileo didn't look at Jupiter forever. He would look at it for a couple of minutes every night for a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, that was kind of it.
4: How long... You know, just say the 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 world at you know large, Seth. And I'm kind of big question here. But how long do you think it
0: would take before we kind of you know, yes or no? Well, if if you don't find a signal, then it can be forever that it's kind of a no. But if you do find a signal, confirming that with other antennas and that sort of thing at the to the point where you would say, you know, it's time to call up the New York Times because this really is a legitimate signal. I mean, that's on the order of days to maybe a week, something like that.
4: Wow, exciting stuff. Seth, just a a quick question then before we kind of, because I know you're a busy chap. What's, you know, are things like at SETI, is things okay there? I'm talking like, say, politics, funding, you know, everything going okay that way?
0: Well, there's always a problem with funding here because... Uh, Although the SETI Institute has a lot of scientists, almost all of them are working on astrobiology projects. They're interested in the idea of life on Mars or life on Enceladus or Titan or, you know, Ganymede, Callisto, Europa, uh, life that might be nearby. And they are funded mostly by NASA. But the SETI experiment, which involves a far smaller number of people, is funded entirely by donations and uh, that's a tough slog. I mean, the, the big problem here is, and always is, money, because we depend on donations in order to do what we're doing.
4: And what about, you know, the the kind of cuz you use use the kind of concept of like using everyone's sharing everyone's computer power to kind of you know do all this is that still you know I'm, I'm guessing you still get the numbers for people you know logging in and helping you with their little computers on like over here in England
0: is everything like that going okay well that's not our project that's a project of the University of California at Berkeley uh, I think you're talking about SETI at home yes and- yeah, and that's been going for at least a decade, and it's still popular, and they they use it to reduce some of their data, actually. We we don't do that because our data, if we find a signal, we check it out within minutes. So we have to check it out right away. You can't wait for somebody on their home computer to to look at the data. So it's not appropriate for what we do, but that's, that's, that's a different project. That's a Berkeley project. So last question then, Seth, what's your good feeling? Well, I, listen, I have no doubt that they're out there. Honestly, I don't. Uh, unfortunately, this particular star is quite far away because it's one of the Kepler uh, star systems, and they are, uh, in general, all very far away. They're between 500 and 1,500 light years away in general. So on average, 1,000 light years away, that's a long way. That means any signals will be very weak. But on the other hand, the number of planets in the Milky Way galaxy is like a trillion. That's a million million. That's a big number. And so... Given the improvement in um, equipment that we're using, if we can continue to find the money to do this, I bet everybody a flat white. I bet everyone a <laughs> cup of Starbucks. We'll find ET within the next two dozen years.
4: Oh, Seth, it's just exciting talking to you and listening to you. You know, again, thank you so much for coming on and just enlightening. You know, just a little bit of how it happens over there at SETI. Thank you so much.
0: You're most welcome, Tony.
4: There you go. Hopefully you will en- yeah, enjoyed that interview. <laughs> the director of SETI, man. Come on. <laughs> You're no messing, man. Guy's and guy's top there. The-, the-, the top dog. The chief man. Brilliant. A lovely, lovely guy to talk to as well. And like I say... We've got some, Seth, give us some more documentation. If you want to come over, you can do it now on your phone. You go over, you, you straight away that first link there, grab it, click here. It says, click here for free alien megastructure plans. Get that, you can download it. It goes to your email and you can just download it there. And you're in our newsletter as well. And that is just a fantastic place to be. So, I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, there's loads of interviews coming. There's some great ones coming in the future as well. I've already recorded them and I'm really enjoying that part of it. But, next up is the main fiction, or one of the main fictions, A Lonesome Speck of Home by Beth Cato. Beth Cato is the author of The Clockwork Dagger, steampunk fantasy series from Harper Voyager. Her short fiction is in the intergalactic medicine show, Beneath Seas of the Skies and Daily Science Fiction. She's a California native transplanted to the Arizona desert where she lives with her husband, son and cat. Follow BethCato.com on Twitter as well, at BethCato. There's links there if you'd like to see if you want to pop over. I've kind of messed that up, you know. The story is narrated by Krista Sorter. Krista is Nova Scotian living in Melbourne, Australia. She learned to read at the age of three. And took it to many years to put the books down again and pay a little attention to her fellow human beings. She has a degree in journalism and abiding love for radio and is thrilled to be living in the edge of the podcast, in the age of the podcasts, Krista, it's lovely to have you on, to be quite honest. Thank you so much. So, like I say, links links on there, you know, just thank you so much for kind of, for Bethel letting me have this story. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... A Lonesome Speck of Home by Beth Cuddle.
2: The goddamn robots were at it again. Victor scowled out the living room window at a panorama of churning dust and powdered debris. Get off your damn phone, he muttered into his cell phone, pressing redial again and again as he encountered a busy signal. Not another house remained standing on his street. Most of the trees were gone, too, nothing more than toothpicks along the cracked and crushed sidewalk. Telephone poles leaned together as if consoling each other. He saw it all with his eyes, yet refused to let reality sink in. The lot across the way still belonged to the smiths. Old Lady Periwinkle should still be next door. The hum of his generator covered up the whistle of the wind across the trampled desert. The receiver at his ear clicked. Major General Montague's office, said the slick voice of the clerk. Victor made a quick tweak to his hearing aids so he could hear through the din. "'This is Victor Lynch!' he yelled. "'I'm calling because—' An especially heavy thud jarred the house, and the shiny butt of the two-hundred-foot mega-robot skidded parallel to the street, over where the Clarks and Smiths used to live. The rainbow-patched robot scrambled upright, its massive black-and-pink metal feet stirring up dirt and crushed concrete. "'Yes, you again—' The clerk did not sound enthused. Damn it, transfer me to Montague, or... Or what? The gruff voice of the general took over the line. They're at it again. Mega is fighting some new alien that just landed. It's blue with a boar's mask. Now, you said you'd get some planes in here. Victor, you're an idiot. I said I'd get planes in there if I could, but I can't. His voice creaked. We have other attack zones in progress across the country right now and some of those are near high-density areas. I'm sorry. My life's in danger here. I'm a United States citizen! The boots shoved backward, and the new robot's feet dominated the window, all shimmery and turquoise. With a spur of rocket boosters, it leapt up. Heat lashed Victor, and he stumbled backward. The window throbbed, new cracks in the surface zigzagging like lightning bolts, but it didn't shatter. You're in danger because you're a stubborn old fool! No one is holding you, prisoner. It's only by sheer luck that your house is still there. If you get stepped on, it's your own damn fault. Major General Montague paused, taking in a sharp breath. Victor, I've known you since I was a kid. I can't change your mind, and hell, I'm tired of trying. I'll make sure there's an honor guard at your funeral. Dead air filled the line. Victor stared at the cell phone and slammed it shut. Arrogant jerk. Victor put every last dime of savings into buying this house thirty years before. His perfect little retirement bungalow, out on the fringe of Palm Springs. At sunset, the brown hills formed a craggy silhouette against a spilled watercolor sky. Now, the property wasn't worth squat. Insurance didn't give a damn. Invasions of alien robots fell under some active god clause. He had mucked through monsoons in Korea and Vietnam— spent a few decades with a bottle permanently adhered to his hand, and finally emerged sober and divorced. This house was all he could rely on. His family? Damn them all. Not even his grandson Ned would stay loyal forever. The boar-faced robot jabbed Mega, sending the rainbow robot flying backward. The boar pivoted, and Victor already knew its intended target, the high school. That's all the invaders cared about. There were a lot of theories about these damned alien attacks, but two things were clear. They always took place near high schools, and some colorful robot always rushed to the school's defense. Therefore, the school was intact in the midst of no man's land. Idiots on the news kept saying the attacks were some plot to slaughter the younger generation, which didn't make much sense since the schools all shut down when the attacks began. He recalled that a few campuses had been destroyed in some other states, though. Not that it was any loss. These teenagers were all morons anyway. Education wouldn't seep through those thick skulls. Grabbing his shotgun, Victor headed into the front yard. The grass had died, but his beloved rose bushes along the sidewalk were still alive, though they had shed every petal. He had planted those roses for his wife back before the divorce, and those blooms had stayed prettier a lot longer than she had. Years ago, He had busted some girl stealing his blooming roses, yelled at her, made her cry. The next morning, he found a wrinkled five-dollar bill beneath a rock on his front step. Victor stared down the street. That kid was probably dead in the initial attack, or had been evacuated. Mega swiped a leg, tripping the alien. It fell face-first into the ground. A cloud of dust obscured the action for a minute, and, when it cleared— Victor could see both robots upright and wrestling. They were near the same size, differentiated only by color and head design. Despite the dirt, their metal bodies gleamed, their curves elegant and smooth like a 55 Chevy. And the way they moved, God, it was like two snakes striking at each other, faster than a blink. A lone missile plumed from the boar's back, the contrail curling like ribbon, The explosion flared between the two robots' faces. The boar staggered backward. Mega seemed unfazed as it reared back a blue fist and jabbed, sending the alien robot airborne. The boar arced high in the sky, heels up, and vanished over the hills. The ground shuddered. Everything was still. He waited, watching. Was that it? After several minutes, Mega lifted its arms. What should have been a triumphant gesture seemed abrupt, tired. Mega's rockets flared, and it took to the sky. The day's battle was done. He stared into the distance where the boar-headed robot had crashed. It hadn't looked too banged up at last sight. The hills were littered with the carnage of past battles. Half-busted metal craniums, fists, miscellaneous shrapnel, missile craters— So much for his beautiful sunsets. This new robot was worth checking out, but there's no way he could walk that far. He headed toward the house. Time to give his sucker of a grandson a call. About an hour later, Ned pulled up to a crushed curb in his rickety Toyota truck. The young man leaned out his window to gawk at the neighborhood. Pop, when you said you were the last one left, I didn't think you really meant it. It's still home. Victor heaved himself inside the truck, grateful the cab had plenty of space for his shotgun. Doesn't this get to you, looking out your window at this every day, knowing that most of them are, I haven't cried in fifty years and I'm not starting now. Are you going to drive this damn thing or not? Ned hunched over and shut his trap. They drove a few miles into the hills, dodging extraterrestrial scrap metal, and found where the boar-headed robot had skidded to rest. Ned whistled as he debarked. Wow, it looks pretty good, he tossed his keys on the seat. Victor marched toward the head where the cockpit surely lay. Ned moved about as fast as Jabba the Hutt and had a similar body type, but he tried to keep up. Something smells like bacon, Ned said between gasps. Yeah, him. Victor pointed at the snout-faced alien draping from the robot's mouth like a flaccid cigar. "'I saw one of these guys last week during a battle. Shot him dead. He was stuck in your grandma's roses.' "'Grandma hated those roses.' "'She sure did. Hated them so much, I got the house in the divorce. I love those damn flowers. God, why do these things have to be so blasted huge?' Victor couldn't climb up the slick surface of the arm, so Ned helped. By the time they reached the top, both were panting and soaked with sweat. Victor hauled the pilot's carcass out and let it roll down to the desert floor, beside the robot's armpit. The glass windshield of the cockpit had shattered cleanly. Black scorch marks showed the damage the craft's own missile had caused. Ned climbed over the edge and fell into a massive chair, big enough for two. He filled it. Victor leaned over the robot's lip. Lights and buttons flashed along the console. "'The computer looks like it's functioning,' said Ned. "'Look at that!' He motioned to something above Victor's head. The old man lay on his back and gazed up. The screen depicted a satellite view of that high school down the street. An overlay showed circles and lines of what he could only guess to be missile trajectories— "'Why the hell is that high school so important?' he asked. "'Why are any of these high schools important?' Ned's thick fingers glanced along a switchboard. "'I mean, there are about fifty of these attack zones all around the country, right? Plus all the places abroad?' "'Yeah,' he gnawed on his chapped lip. "'You like computers. Why don't you play around with this thing for a while?' "'Play around? No. God, no.' I don't want to launch nuclear missiles by accident. Out here, no one would notice the difference. He slid out of the cockpit and sat upright, letting the blood return to his head. I'm going to borrow your truck for a while. What? You don't even have a license anymore. Ned's hands gripped the chair arms as he tried and failed to pry himself up. Pop, no! I'm going to check out this high school. I'll be back later. Don't break my robot. Your robot? Pop, stop! You need to call the government! Don't leave me with this thing! Victor didn't stop. He blocked out the yells, just as he blocked out the vision of ruins beyond his front door. Debris pockmarked the sprawling school grounds. The doors to the main building remained locked, but a gate creaked open. Not even birds chirped. At least cemeteries had birds and greenery and flowers. Victor hunched his shoulders. How many had died in the first robot attack? Thousands. It had happened at the butt crack of dawn. No one saw it coming. A tattered United States flag dangled from a pole in the quad. He paused for a moment. Back when he was a kid, that flag meant something to him. Then, blood, death, loneliness, a homecoming to derision and indifferent children— an inebriated haze, abiding loneliness. The latter, at least, was a conscious choice. Now he had his house. That and his pride. Victor's hearing aids picked up the distant low murmur of voices. He pressed his back against the wall, rifle barrel against his shoulder. His shadow stretched long against a cinder block wall. He rounded the corner to find a door ajar. Hot, stale air pressed on him like a blanket. Voices echoed from down the hall. Damn! Vandals! Nothing was sacred to these punks! He sidled down the hallway, his left knee creaking in rhythm with his steps. A wall display showed chemical compounds and twined DNA ladders. The door to the next classroom stood open. He propelled himself through the doorway, bringing the gun level. Five kids in colorful costumes sat on the floor, surrounded by an array of liquor bottles. Victor opened his lips to scold them, then noticed the wall behind them was a rippling, iridescent portal, like something out of a goddamn movie. His jaw fell limp, and he stepped forward. Stop! the girl in turquoise leaped to her feet. Don't move! Or what? growled Victor, brandishing the rifle. The first six inches of the barrel vanished. A cascade of grey dust drifted to the floor. He scrambled backward, staring at his lopped-off firearm. "It's a force field,' said the boy in red. His words slurred. "'If people wander in and see that,' he jabbed a thumb at the portal, "'they waltz right into the barrier. Never knew it hit them. Damned alien technology!' Victor eyed the invisible wall, but couldn't even see a distinct line in the ceiling or floor. However, he did see dust—piles of it—on both sides of the barricade. Your prisoners? Where are the guards?' The kid in yellow laughed. The sound edged on Maniacal. "'Prisoners? You have to ask if we're prisoners?' He flung a bottle. It arced straight at Victor, and then was gone. Only amber dust drifted across his chest. We don't need any guards, not with that thing. You should have just let him walk into the barrier, said the kid in red. No. The girl in turquoise sat down again, straight black hair draped to her jaw in crude chunks, as if hacked with a dull knife. Sweat glazed her dusky skin. You're the old guy in the last house, the one who won't leave. Yeah. "'And what the hell is this?' Victor jerked the gun barrel toward the portal. "'God, just go away!' That came from the kid in yellow. "'You don't want to know!' "'That's the dimensional shortcut that leads directly to Mega,' the girl in turquoise said it matter-of-factly, then whipped her head to look at her companions on either side. "'Someone needs to know. One of these days—' Her voice cracked. "'I want someone to know—' Someone from our neighborhood. We can tell him. He's already proven he won't leave. She tilted back a bottle of hard lemonade, as if to fortify herself. He stared at her. Why did she look so familiar? She's right. That came from the slender girl in pink. The military knows, and they're still alive. Why not him? The military knows? Victor took in everything. You all pilot that mega-robot, and you're drunk. The pink girl waggled a finger. We're drunk now. This is our little celebration for another battle won. There won't be another fight until tomorrow, at least. Tomorrow. God, tomorrow. The red-garbed boy shivered. I want to know what's going on, Victor said. The girl in turquoise set down her bottle. It's pretty simple, really. We're unwilling contestants in the ultimate intergalactic game show, run by these aliens called the Gonquins. We were selected because we are considered the optimum age group. Teenagers. A dozen of us were grabbed, all honor students. We have to protect the high school using Mega. The high school. The robot. The pieces slipped together in Victor's mind. So what is this, some damn game of capture the flag? Yeah, but the game is rigged. It doesn't matter how many times we win. If an alien pilot defeats us once and destroys the school, they own the region. That's it. Game over. The boy in yellow nodded. The Gonquins look at schools like churches or something. Nothing is more sacred. Having one at stake and eventually blown up is like some big, alluring taboo. In our case, when someone else wins, it means they own all of Southern California, said the kid in red. They can do whatever they want with it. Victor gnawed his lip as he thought. Some high schools have been destroyed. Damn, so these kids' robots lost the battles. Yeah, said the kid, in New Jersey and Detroit. Goddamn. No wonder no one knows the difference. The aliens like to see everything destroyed, said the girl in pink. They cheer. It's like that old TV show with the home videos and how everyone laughs when a guy gets kicked in the nuts. She clenched her eyes shut. The Gonquins laugh a lot. The girl in turquoise pointed towards Victor. We're all that's left of our school's pilots. The others couldn't take it. She nodded towards Victor and took another long guzzle from the bottle. He didn't need to ask how. Twelve. Now five. God, all that dust along the barrier wasn't just dust. Victor forced his gaze to the teenagers in their sleek suits. He knew these kids, not by name, but from the neighborhood. Staring through blinds day after day, he'd seen them walk to the basketball courts down the street or play in the Smith's Yard across the way. "'Your families are dead,' he said. "'Yeah,' she frowned into her lemonade. "'We couldn't warn them or anything. "'We either sit here or in the lair with Mega "'or walk into that force field. "'Zap!' she flared at her fingers. "'Agonquin brings us food and whatever else we need.' "'She tossed the bottle across the room "'where it landed atop a stained-glass mountain of broken bottles. "'You don't know what it's like doing this day after day.' knowing that if we don't win... God, Victor knew. Not with stakes this high, but he knew. He knew about the jungle and dead friends, and how his heart galloped as he listened to the whistle of dropping shells, wondering if the next would land on him. But damn it, he'd volunteered. He was an idiot, but a willing one. These kids—and they were kids! God damn, two of them were pizza-faced, and only one of the boys had facial hair. Heat stung his eyes. This wasn't right. Nothing about this was. With so much in the neighborhood gone, it makes me smile to look at your house sometimes, whispered the girl in turquoise. She lifted up her chin, and for a split second he saw her as she used to be, all pudgy-faced with wide, dark eyes. The rose bushes are about the only green things left. He stared. That's who you are. You're the kid, the little thief, the one who paid me for the roses. She didn't meet his eye. Yeah, for my mom's birthday. She loved them. You never caught me after that, but I kept taking roses every year. I didn't always have money, so I would pull weeds from the sidewalk, save your newspaper from the gutter, stuff like that. She smiled into the distance. Mom loved those roses. How much does the military know about this game? Victor asked, his voice rasping. As much as we do, I guess. They aren't allowed to interfere or they forfeit the entire country. All they can do is help refugees and monitor everything. No wonder Montague couldn't bring in planes. Everyone in this was powerless, even the kids with their rainbow robot. Victor refused to be powerless. He was 81 years old. What did he have to lose? His life? His house? His roses? The thought of those bushes only bolstered his resolve. I want to know the rules of this game, he said. She shook her head, shorn hair sticking to her cheeks. The rules are simple, but they won't do you any good. The winning pilot has to be in a combat robot, defeat us, and must destroy the entire high school. That's it. It doesn't matter where the pilot's from. No, they win for their home planet. These contestants come from all over. Why? You have a spare robot in your backyard? She snorted and reached for another bottle. As a matter of fact, yes, I do. A slow smile crept across Victor's face. I think it's time you threw the match. She leaned against her sweat-soaked leggings, thoughtful, and said nothing for several minutes. The others looked at each other communicating something beyond words. Then, slowly, each of them nodded. The girl stared into her white-gloved hands. We'd have to... we'd have to put up a fight. It's all for entertainment. If it's too easy, we can do this. It'll work. Yeah, she said, and each of them nodded again. We're ready for this to end. When Victor returned to the fallen, boar-faced robot that evening... Ned awaited him, flush-faced and angry. He did not respond well to Victor's plan. "'Pop, no. I mean, Dad told us you're crazy for years, and staying in your neighborhood proved it. But this—trying to win some alien game show?' He shook his head, sweat-flying. "'No way!' "'They told me how to operate the damn thing.' Victor had retrieved a paper pad from his house and queried the kids on the basics even sketched out schematics based on their descriptions. "'It's meant to be piloted by a team.' "'Team?' Ned laughed, nigh hysterical. "'You don't know the meaning of the word! And you ask me after abandoning me in the desert all day? No. I don't care if you have every switch labeled with a sticky note. I'm not doing it. You're on your own from here. Literally.' Victor watched his grandson drive away. The kid was right to be angry. Hell, leaving Victor in the hills was probably safer than returning him home. And when it came down to it, he didn't want Ned to get killed. Maybe it was for the best. I used to be part of a team, he whispered. Conrad, Jessup, Marco, Martinez, Belding. He hadn't thought of them in years, not since he saw them leave Nam in coffins too big for their contents. Now he was part of a team again, and he didn't even know the kids' names. Morning Sun glared through the glassless cockpit. The robot lurched with each long stride and slid Victor side to side in the massive captain's chair. Along the dash, he had taped translations on usage and toggle functions. It would be enough to get the job done. An alarm wailed above, a blue light spinning and flashing. The label, Enemy in Proximity. A distant roar came from behind him. Mega was on its way. Victor crested the last hill, kicking a decapitated robot head on the way down. It bounced across the deserted valley like an oversized soccer ball. His house looked like a mere anthill from this height and distance. It looked insignificant, and it was. Victor's gnarled hands clutched at the two-foot, wishbone-shaped steering wheel. The roar behind him grew louder. A yellow light began to spin. Incoming missiles. Time for evasive action. He couldn't help but grin, although that very type of thinking on the freeway had cost him his driver's license. Victor threw himself forward, pressing down on two pedals. Cold air whooshed into the cockpit as the robot leapt up. His body jerked against the bloodied seatbelt, but it held. Rocket boosters rumbled from the soles far below. He glanced up and hit a sequence of three switches, pausing to look at his scribbled instructions, and then pressed a large green button in the center console. A screen dropped into his sight range. There was the high school, green-tinted, the trajectories highlighted. Damn, where did Mega go? Victor hadn't enabled all of the screens, and he didn't dare turn this thing around too fast. The robot had to be somewhere above him. He pressed the button again. The robot rocked as missiles shot from barrels on each arm, three from right, two from left. Fluffy contrails arced toward the school. God, let this work! Victor sagged forward, his heart threatening to pound out of his chest. He was too old for this damn stuff anymore. They had to make this look like a battle, like Victor won, fair and square. Mr. Lynch. The girl pilot's voice rang over a small speaker, as clear as if she stood next to him. I just want you to know, we're okay with this. We're ready. What the hell are you talking about? A panel to the right beeped in a steady rhythm. Victor frowned. The beeping was supposed to indicate the missile's proximity to their target, but they were nowhere close to the school yet. Alarms from Mega rang over the speaker. You have to defeat us— Defeat you? No, you didn't say it. Not like that. Blowing up the school should be enough. I'm sorry. We have to do this, or it wouldn't be over. She paused. Thanks for the roses. In a distant rainbow blur, Mega dropped out of the sky— and directly into the path of the two left-hand missiles. Victor stared out of the gaping cockpit, then at the dash, then back out. There was nothing he could do. Those kids! Damn it, he should have seen this coming! You're all just kids, he whispered. He and his buddies used to be kids, too. That was long ago. So very long ago. The first explosion caught Mega in the chest. Its arms pinwheeled backward as if to regain balance, then the next missile struck. Even from a mile away, the pressure shift rocked Victor in his seat. Mega became a towering inferno and crumpled to its knees. Behind it, more explosions. Mushroom clouds billowed from the school grounds. When the dust cleared, the screen showed craters instead of buildings. The sirens silenced. Victor's hands fell limp in his lap. Every screen above the console flared to life, more descending from the sides. They showed crowds of alien beings. Some pig-snouted, others cat-like, some he couldn't even describe beyond saying they were damned ugly. He'd won. Victor sat there a moment, staring at the screens, staring at the button labeled Report to Gonquins. He finally leaned forward and compressed it, My name is Victor Lynch, and I declare this frigging victory for Earth. He didn't recognize his own voice. God, he sounded old. The rejoicing on the screens didn't stop. This is what those kids had seen almost every day after killing someone, after stomping a five-mile radius into dust. Even if they didn't kill their own families, the guilt was there, logical or not and the aliens cheered. It all became clear then. He saw his neighborhood and the lonesome speck of his house and how he had squandered the last fifty years of his life on bitterness. He had screamed at that little girl for clipping off a single rose. Now, when he would give all of the blooms away, there were no roses, no people. Victor leaned against the console and sobbed.
4: Don't forget, copyright is Beth. Beth, thank you so much for that. Just, wow, man, what a writer. What a writer. Thank you so much. And Krista, what can I say? The voice just suits. Do you know what I mean? It's just lovely. Thank you so much. I just, I cannot do it. You know what I mean? It's just hats off to people who can narrate. Just fantastic. Thank you so much, both ears. So next up is the final story and is Mesquisha In Time by Rachel K. Jones. Now this story is actually this is what I kinda like as well. It's featured in what an anthology called the Hugo Long List anthology, which is in kind of Cross promotion and production with Skyboat Media. Skyboat Media is as, and I've interviewed Stefan as well. Stefan Rudnicki's audio kind of extravaganza. Do you know what I mean? The guy's got a voice, man. It's his company and he's got a voice that just like melts you, man, when you listen to it. Well, this anthology has been put together by David Stefan, and I tell you why I like it because it's a quirky idea and it's it's a great idea as well because.
2: Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
4: You know, the kind of there's a list put up and then, you know, the kind of the, the, the top of the tree or the top of this list goes into the kind of the final mix, you know, to kind of pick your winners for the Hugo Awards. Well, David's went and kind of picked out certain stories from this kind of Hugo long list. And put them into this anthology. And he did a Kickstarter for it. And it I mean, no wonder it kinda of, it passed its, you know, passed the kind of it succeeded, Which is what a great idea. And he's got some like stories in there that are just fantastic writers as well, man. Elizabeth Baer's in there. Elliot Debado, she's in there. You know what I mean? There's just, you know, and you know, the the late UG Foster's in there as well. Do you know what I mean? This story what we're about to play by Rachel K. Jones is in there. It's a great idea, and it comes out next week. And, like I said, the audiobook as well is being produced by Skyboat Media. Just fantastic. And I'll give you a little bit more about Skyboat, but we're on about, at the moment, the writer, Rachel K. Jones. Rachel K. Jones is a science fiction and fantasy author and co-editor of PodCastle. Her fiction has appeared in, or is forthcoming in, Lightspeed, assessing the future Strange Horizons PodCastle Escape Pod the Drabblecast, Intergalactic Medicine Show. Man, she's all over. Well done. Go on there, Rachel. She has a degree in English and is currently pursuing a second degree in speech-language pathology. She lives in Athens with her husband and reader Jason. You can follow her on Twitter, at Rachel K. Jones. I like to say, Rachel, thank you so much for letting me you know play this and, you know what I mean, fellow podcaster as well there, co-editor of PodCastle, do you know what I mean? Amazing work, amazing work, and like I say, this story is narrated by Stefan Rudnicki, and the whole book's been put together by his Skyboat Media company, and it's just lifted up, man, lifted up a category or two. Do you know what I mean? A quality or two. It's just like guy's been doing it for years, and somewhere in our archives, I had a chat with Stefan. You know, and he was in. I tell you what, he was in as well. He was on the. SofaCon, we had Stefan on there as well with Lightspeed Magazine. You know, I was chatting to Stefan on there as well. But Stefan Rudnicki first became involved with audiobooks in 1994. <laughs> Stefan, do you, do you have to say that, lad? <laughs> now a Grammy winning audiobook producer. He's worked on more than 2,000 audiobooks as a narrator, writer, producer, or director. He has narrated more than is, 300 audiobooks. Man, I don't even think I've read that many or listened to that many. Recipient of Multiple Audiophile Earphones Award. He was presenter for the coveted Audio Award for Solo Narration in 2005, 2007, and 2014. Proves he's still got it, man. Proves he's still got it. And was named of one of the audiophiles' golden voices in 2012. And like I say, this anthology, the Hugo Longlist Award, I've got a link onto it. So again, pop over to the the website, under this post. And while you're grabbing your free plans for the alien megastructure, you can kind of click over there and reserve a copy of... David Steffens' the Hugo long list anthology, like I say, great idea because them stories. I mean, they are actually it's a cool little it's a it's a ripe tree for picking stories so we can play on the podcast. But it's lovely someone's kind of thought. You know what? We need to kind of put this in an anthology and like say David over there, the kind of Dribble of Ink podcast podcast, you know, website is is sorted it of out and like I say, he put up his his Kickstarter and you know. Well done, it kind of took off the day, kind of passed all the things, and it's coming out next week. So if you want a copy of this, that would be fantastic, you know what I mean? Do pop over there. Or oh, you could get the, the audio book as well from Skyboat Media. Mmm, very tasty indeed. And a big thank you for letting those two fine gentlemen play. let us play Rachel's story as well. So, the Starship Sova is a very proud present.
1: Markeisha in Time. By Rachel K. Jones Makisha has always been able to bend the fourth dimension, though no one believes her. She has been a soldier, a sheriff, a pilot, a prophet, a poet, a ninja, a nun, a conductor of trains and symphonies, a cordwainer, a comedian, a carpet bagger, a troubadour, a queen, and a receptionist. She has shot arrows, guns, and cannons. She speaks an extinct Ethiopian dialect with a perfect accent. She knows a recipe for mead that is measured in auroch's horns, and with a katana she is deadly. Her jumps happen intermittently. She will be yanked from the present without warning and live a whole lifetime in the past. When she dies, she returns right back to where she left, restored to a younger age. It usually happens when she is deep in conversation with her boss or arguing with her mother-in-law or during a book club meeting just when it is her turn to speak. One moment, Makisha is firmly grounded in the timeline of her birth, and the next, she is elsewhere, else when. Makisha has seen the sun rise over prehistoric shores where the ocean writhed, with soft, slimy things that bore the promise of dung beetles, Archaeopteryx, and Edgar Allan Poe. She has seen the sun set upon long-forgotten empires. When Makisha skims a map of the continents, she sees a fractured Pangaea. She never knows where she will jump next, or how long she will stay, but she is never afraid. Makisha has been doing this all her life. Makisha learned long ago to lie about the jumping. When she was nine, she attempted to prove it to her mother by singing in Egyptian, but her mother just laughed and sent her to do the dishes. She received worse when she contradicted her history teachers. It was intolerable sitting in school in the body of a child, but with the memories of innumerable lifetimes, while incomplete truths and half-truths and outright lies were written on the board. The adults called a conference about her attention-seeking behavior, and she learned to keep her mouth shut. The hardest part is coming back. Once when she was twelve, she was slouched in the pew at church when she felt the past tug. Makisha found herself floundering in the roiling ocean of the Mediterranean, only to be saved by Moorish pirates who hauled her aboard in the nick of time. At first, the bewildered men and women treasured their catch as a mascot and good-luck charm. Later, after nearly ten years of fine seacraft and fearless warfare, they made her captain of the ship. Makisha took to piracy like sheet music. She could climb ropes and hold her grog with the best sailors, and even after losing an eye in a gunpowder explosion, she never once wept and wished herself home. The day came when, at the Pasha's command, she set sail to intercept Spanish invaders in Ottoman waters. It was a hot night when they sighted the lanterns of the enemy shuddering on the waves. Makisha's crew pulled their ship astern the enemy's vessel in the dark and fog after midnight. She gave the order, Charge! Her deep voice booming through the mists, echoed by the shouts of her pirates as they swung on ropes over the sliver of ocean between the ships and suddenly an explosion and a pinching sensation in her midriff, and she was twelve again in the church pew, staring at her soft palms through two perfect eyes. That was when she finally wept. So loud and hard, the reverend stopped his sermon to scold her. Her father grounded her for a week after that. People often get angry with Makisha when she returns. She can't control her befuddlement the way the room spins like she is drunk, and how for days and weeks afterward she cannot settle back into who she was because the truth is she isn't the same. Each time she returns from the past, she carries another lifetime nestled within her like the shell of a matryoshka doll. Once, after the fall of the Roman Empire, she joined a peasant uprising in Bavaria, and charging quickly from fiefdom to fiefdom, their band pushed back the warlords to the foothills of the Alps. Those who survived, sued for mercy, begged her not to raise their fields, pledged fealty to her. As a condition of the peace, Makisha demanded their daughters in marriage to seal the political alliance. The little kings, too afraid of the barbarian queen to shout their umbrage, conceded. They even attended the weddings— where Makisha stood with her sword piece-tied at her waist and took the trembling hand of each Bavarian princess into her own. Once the wedding guests left, Makisha gathered her wives together in the throne room. Please, she said to them, help me. I need good women I can trust to run this kingdom right. With their help, she established a stable state in those war-torn days. In time... All her wives made excellent deputies, ambassadors, sheriffs, and knights in her court. Makisha had been especially broken up when her time in Bavaria was cut short by a bout of pneumonia. Many of her wives had grown to be dear friends of hers, and she wondered for months and months what had become of them and their children, and whether her fiefdom had lasted beyond her passing. She wanted to talk with her best friend Philippa, to cry about it. But her phone calls went unanswered, and so did her emails. Makisha could not remember when she had last spent time with Philippa or her other friends here in the present. It was so hard to remember when her weeks and months were interspersed with whole lifetimes of friends and lovers and enemies. The present was a stop-motion film, a book interrupted mid-page and abandoned for years at a time. And when she did return... She always carried with her another death. Makisha does not fear death anymore. She has died so many times, always awakening in the present, whole and alive as before the jump. She does not know what would happen if she died in the present. Perhaps she would awaken in the future. She has never tried to find out. She cannot remember her first death. She probably died hundreds of times in her infancy before she was old enough to walk. Her jumps left her in the wilderness or ocean more often than not, and when she did arrive near civilization, few took pity on a strange abandoned child who could not explain her presence. Makisha's mother often joked about her appetite, how from the time she was a baby she ate like a person on the verge of starvation. Her mother does not know how close this is to the truth. These days, Makisha wears her extra pounds with pride, knowing how often they have been her salvation. When Philippa finally returns her calls, she reams Makisha for slighting her all year, for the forgotten birthday, for the missed housewarming party. Makisha apologizes like she always does. They meet up in person for a catch up over coffee, and Makisha resolves that this time she will be present for her friend. They are deep in conversation when she feels the tug, just as Philippa is admitting that she is afraid of what the future may bring. No, thinks Makisha, when she finds herself blinking on the edge of a sluggish river under the midday sun. Two white bulls have lifted their heads to stare at her, water dripping from their jowls. Makisha struggles to keep the conversation fresh in her head as she casts around for a quick way home, She chooses the river. It is hard, that first time, to make herself inhale, to still her windmilling arms, to let death take this Matryoshka life so she can hasten back to the present. She has lost the thread of the conversation anyway when she snaps back to Philippa's kitchen. Migraine, she explains, rubbing away the memory of pain from her dizzy head, and Philippa feeds her two aspirin and some hot mint tea. Makisha resolves to do better next time, and eventually she does. On her first date with Carl, she strangles herself with strings from the lute of a Hittite bard. On their wedding day, she detours to a vast desert that she cannot place, which she escapes by crawling into a scorpion nest. That death was painful. The next time she jumps, two days later on their honeymoon she takes the time to learn the proper way to open her wrists with a sharp-edged rock. Her husband believes her when she says it's migraines. All of it, the self-imposed silence, the suicides, the banishing of her fantastic past to the basement of her brain, these are the price of a normal life, of friendships and a marriage and a steady job. Mundane though it is, Makisha reminds herself that this life is different from the other ones. Irreplaceable. Real. Still, she misses the past, where she has lived most of her life. She reads history books with a black marker and strikes out the bits that make her scoff. Then, with a red pen, she writes in the margins all the names she can recall. All the forgotten people who mattered just as much as George Washington and Louis XIV when Carl asks, she explains how the world has always belonged to more than just the great men who were kings and presidents and generals. But for some reason, no one wrote it down. "'I think you're trying too hard,' he says, and she hates the pity in his eyes when he holds up his hands and adds, "'But if it makes you feel happy, keep on with it.' One day, as a surprise, Her husband drove her four hours to a museum hosting an exhibit on medieval history. Makisha screeched and grabbed Carl's arm when she saw the posters at the entrance. Eighth-century Bavaria. It had been five years and dozens of self-murdered lives since she was torn from her thriving kingdom, from her deputy wives and her war band, but the memories were still so fresh. Her face was composed as she purchased tickets, but she bounced on the balls of her feet all the way to the front of the line. It was the first time she had encountered any proof of a previous life. Euphoria flared in her breast when she peered into glass cases that held familiar objects. Old and worn, but recognizable all the same, the proof of her long years of warfare and wisdom and canny leadership. A lead comb, most of its bristles missing, its colored enamel, long ago worn to gray. It had belonged to Jutta, perhaps. She had such fine long hair, although she had kept it bound tightly for her work as a doctor. A thin gold ring she had given to dark-eyed Berthe, in commemoration of her knighthood. And the best of all, a silver coin stamped with her own stylized profile, her broad nose jutting past her Bavarian war-helm, There was a placard on the glass. Makisha read it thrice, each time a little slower, thinking perhaps she'd missed something. But no. Early medieval objects from the court of a foreign king. He reigned in Bavaria for about thirty years. He? He?! Makisha stormed back to the entrance, "'demanded to speak with a manager, "'her vision swimming a violent red, "'her hand groping for a pommel "'she did not wear any more. "'It was wrong. "'It was all wrong, wrong, wrong. "'Her wives assigned a husband "'and stripped of their deputieship. "'Their legacy handed to a manufactured person. "'Carl begged her to tell him what was wrong. Makisha realized she was shouting oaths "'in ancient German,' And that was when she felt the familiar tug in her navel and found herself spinning back, back, further back than she had gone last time, until she arrived on an empty beach beneath a moon with a smooth, craterless face. Her practiced eye spotted three ways to die on its first sweep, drowning, impaling, crushing. But there was Yuta's comb to consider, and that placard. When she gave up time travel, she never thought she had surrendered her legacy, too. Makisha turned her back on the ocean and walked into the woods, busying herself with building a fire and assembling the tools she would need for her stay, however long it might be. She had learned to be resourceful and unafraid of the unfamiliar creaks and groans in the ferny green of the prehistoric underbrush. She chipped a cascade of sparks into her kindling And that is when Makisha formed her plan. She is done with the present, with the endless self-murder, with the repression and suffocation and low stakes. A woman unafraid to die can do anything she wants. A woman who can endure starvation and pain and deprivation can be her own boss, set her own agenda. The one thing she cannot do is to make them remember she did it. Makisha is going to change that. No more suicides, then. Makisha embraces the jumps again. She is a boulder thrown into the waters of time. In eighth-century Norway she joins a band of Viking women. They are callous but good-humoured, and they take her rage in stride as though she has nothing to explain. They give her a sword taller than she is, but she learns to swing it anyway and to sing loudly into the wind when one of the slain is buried with her hoard, sword folded on her breast. When she returns to the present, Makisha has work to do. She will stop mid-sentence, spin on her heel, and head for the books, leaving an astonished co-worker or friend or her husband calling after her. She pours everything into the search for her own past. One of her contacts sends her an email about a Moorish pirate, a woman making a name for herself among the Ottomans. A Spanish monk wrote about her last voyage, the way she leapt upon her prey like a gale in the night, how her battle cry chilled the blood. Makisha's grin holds until the part where the monk called her a whore. This is accepted without question as factual by the man writing the book. She is obsessed. Makisha almost loses her job because of her frequent forgetfulness, her accidental rudeness. Her desk is drowned in ancient maps. Her purse is crammed with reams of genealogies. In her living room, which has been lined from wall to wall with history books ever since Carl moved out, Makisha tries to count the lives stacked inside her. There are so many of them. They are crowding to get out. She once tried to calculate how many years she had been alive. It was more than a thousand And what did they amount to? Makisha is smeared across the timeline, but no one ever gets her quite right. Those who found the cairn of her Viking band assumed the swords and armor meant the graves of men. A folio of her sonnets, anonymous after much copying, are attributed to her assistant, Giorgio. "'You're building a fake identity,' Philippa tells her one day." Daring the towers of books and dried out markers to bring Makisha some soup. There weren't any black women in ancient Athens. There weren't any in China. You need to come to grips with reality, my friend. There were two, says Makisha fiercely, proudly. I know there were. They were just erased, forgotten. I'm sure there were a few exceptions, but women just didn't do the kind of things you're interested in. Makisha says, It doesn't matter what I do if people refuse to believe it. Her jumps are subdued after that. She turns to the written word for immortality. Makisha leaves love poetry on the walls of Aztec tombs in carefully colored Nahuatl pictograms. She presses cuneiform into soft clay, documenting the exploits of the proud women whose names are written in red in the margins of her history books. She records the names of her lovers in careful Hanzi strokes with horsehair bristles in bamboo books. Even these, the records she makes herself, do not survive intact. Sometimes the names are replaced by others deemed more remarkable, more credible by the scribes who came after. Sometimes they are erased entirely. Mostly the books just fade into dust with time. She takes comfort, knowing that she is not unique, that the chorus of lost voices is thundering. She is fading from the present. She forgets to eat between jumps, loses weight. Sometimes she starves to death when she lands in an isolated spot. Carl catches her one day at the mailbox. Sorry for just showing up. You haven't returned my calls, he explains, Offering her a sheaf of papers. Makisha accepts them and examines the red stamped first page of their divorce papers. You need to sign here, Carl says, pointing upside down at the bottom of the sheet. Also on the next page. Please? The last word carries a pleading note. Makisha notes his puffy eyes and a single white hair standing out in the black nest of his beard. How long has it been? she asks. She has lived at least three lifetimes since he left, but she isn't sure. Too long, he says. Please, I just need your signature so we can move on. She pats her pockets and finds a red pen. Makisha wonders how many decades or centuries until this signature is also altered or lost or purposely erased. But she touches pen to paper anyway. Halfway through her signature... She spends twenty-six years sleeping under the stars with the Aborigines, and when she comes back, the rest of her name trails aimlessly down the sheet. Carl doesn't seem to notice. After he leaves, she escapes to India for a lifetime, where she ponders whether her time travel is a punishment or purgatory. When she returns to the present again, Makisha weeps like she did when she was twelve and her heart was breaking for her days as a pirate. Perhaps it is not the past that is yanking her away. Perhaps the present is crowding her out, and perhaps she has finally come to agree with the sentiment. In her living room, among the towers of blacked-out books, Makisha sees six ways to die from where she stands. Perhaps the way out is forward. Break through the last Matryoshka shell like a hatchling into daylight. But no, no. The self-murders were never for herself. Not once. Makisha is resilient. She is resourceful, and she has been bending the fourth dimension all her life, whether anyone recognizes it or not. A woman who has been pushed her whole life will eventually learn to push back. Makisha reaches forward into the air with skillful fingers that have killed and healed and mastered the cello, she pulls the future toward her. She has not returned.
4: There you go. What can I say? Copyright is Rachel's don't, don't you dare don't you get David on your case now as well and Stefan. And a big thank you to them two guys as well. You know, Skyboat Media and David Stefan. Let me kind of play that. And the cool thing is, coming up, and I'm not too sure when, but not too far in the distance as well, we've got a story by David Stefan as well. So we can kinda of See what his metal's worth there, Jeremy. You know I mean? Oh, it's actually a great story, you know. What I mean? It's a lovely story to be quite honest. So you can see how cool David is as a writer as well. But as an editor, he ticks all the box. New young editor coming onto the scene. So I hope you enjoyed it today's show. Like I say, we are now on our own. This is it. This, all the supports being kicked away. We've got the Patreon. You know, there's a link there, Do you know. What I mean? A dollar, do you know what I mean? A dollar. Actually, a dollar it's only fifty pence. You know, when you kinda of get converted into the kind of God's English Queen's, you know, shilling and pence. It's it's less than what you think. But it it all helps. Do you know what I mean? My God, will it help? You know what I mean? It helps so much. And one day we would love to be at the kind of pay writers. Do you know what I mean? That's the 2016 if we can achieve that. Do you know what I mean? It's just up there. Fantastic. So don't forget over this. Audio play out, you know what I mean? This kind of little outro. There's a little bit more, there's a little extra Easter egg there for you, or Christmas egg. My woes, should I say, of my little holiday adventure. Until next week, I'd just like to see it. Good night from me. <laughs>
0: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
1: Tune in next week for the next exciting installment
0: of... ...Sortium Sofa. Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will
3: be
1: opened in 3... ...2... ...1... This presentation has been brought to you by the
3: District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
4: So I've got a story to tell. And like I say, I thought I would put it here because I might waffle on a little bit too much. And if anybody doesn't want to... (laughs) Here is Waffle. Do you know what I mean? I'm married to one. that I thought let's just stick it here and then see if, you know, you can kind of enjoy the show for what it is. But I thought some people might kind of just get, get into what happened to, to me and my family over the weekend. You know what I mean? So he has the, he has the, the rundown. Basically, as you know, my kind of goal is to kind of get self-sufficient running Starship Sova. Do you know what I mean? Running a district of wonders network. And I've been putting loads of kind of behind the scenes time in, honestly, just so much time. I sit here at this desk and I'm here, honestly, of late, you know what I mean? Till I kind of made a, right, I'll, I'll give it a go, see how it does it. For a couple of weeks there, I've been, you know, and I've been sitting till, say, two o'clock in the morning and there's been a spot on my back, like a certain area, where it just burns. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm obviously sitting at the wrong way, you know, and it's kind of tension taut and it's just burning. And I want to get all this done, all this kind of, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn a whole new process and all kinds of sorts of things. So that's hence why that. But we've had this kind of little cottage, little lodge booked for, for quite a while there now. And I was aiming to get it all done, all my work done to kind of get so we can just kind of chill out at this cottage. And we actually went there in the summer. And there was this like lodge cottage thing in the Lake District. And it was just lovely. And I was saying to Melanie, my wife, I says, that would be lovely. just, I've got a few days off there, and Chris, you know, like run up to Christmas. I says, well, we should book one of these lodges again. And yeah, cheap as anything, man. You know what I mean? And totally different in, in the winter from school times in the summer. So we booked four nights, I think it was, in this, and it's I think it's called Lime Fit Holiday Park, just on about four miles away from Lake Windermere. Just gorgeous. Just like you see, we went there in the summer. We walked fells and everything, and it was just cathartic. You know what I mean? It was gorgeous. So come the day, all my stuff, all my stuff sorted. You know, I think I was actually up that night to try and get some stuff sorted. It, honestly, two o'clock. I'm getting texts off my wife saying, "Come to bed, man. Come to bed." All done, and it's not often I kind of knock off the starships of a HQ computer. Do you know what I mean? I just switched it off from the wall, and that was it. So we go on our happy holidays, and it's only about two and a half hours to kinda of get there. And it's it was just honestly just to kind of get away and just get some kind of quality time like family time on the run up to, to to kind of Christmas. So we go in, and you go over from where I live, it's like say two and a half hours, but the, the sat nav took, took over towards or through the I think it was the a sixty six towards Kirby Stephen. And that way into the lakes. Normally we don't go that way, normally we go the kind of Carlisle Penrith way. But anyway, we got stuck in traffic there. And the diversion took me around these little country roads, but didn't all the kind of wagons go that way as well. So it took we even just to get there, four hours. Four and a half hours actually. And we took the little dog with her as well. Got into the thing, it was dark by the time we you know we kinda of had to wait for the the daughter finishing her half day at um, at work. So we got there around about half four and it was dark when we pulled up. But we pulled up this lodge and honestly, it was just, God, there was a big Christmas tree in the window. All the lights were cosy. There was twinkling fairy lights on the tree. There was decoration lights up around the outside. You know, and it was just so inviting. And it was like, oh, dead exciting, dead exciting. We piles in, unpacks the car and whizzes the dog round for a walk. And then I think within, say, an hour, I says, come on, we'll we'll nip up to the, the the they've got like a pub on site, we'll nip up, we'll get with tea, a couple of drinks, and we'll be back for strictly, not strictly, for I'm a celebrity. Yes, big fans of I'm a celebrity. And did you see that Geordie won it? She did that last won it. So that was actually nice as well. So we did that, and I just honestly, I have got so much, you know, with the kind of doing the the Hadrian's wall, doing that walk. I've got so much gear, waterproof, this, that, all the kind of gear. And I says, oh, I'm not going to bother putting it on. I'm just going up to the pub. We Trump's up there, gets a lovely meal, few drinks, just about to go. And it is pouring down. Bear in mind, I've got this kind of, just like a, a jumper and it, almost a pair of jeans in me walking boots. And I said, I'm going to get soaked here. Do you know what I mean? And it was honestly, man, biblical. Do you know what I mean? Just lashing it down. It was almost like, and the, the wife, do you know what I mean? It was just giggling. Do you know what I mean? Like, what an idiot. You've got all that gear. You don't even bring a coat to come to the pub. So I said, oh, come on, we'll, we'll go. And it was actually quite funny. Do you know what I mean? It was just, and we got absolutely soaking wet to the point where it was just like, this is, you." I'm only like walking 100, 200 yards at the most to get to this kind of where we were staying from this like little kind of barn pub. Gets in, drenched wet, has to get changed, pulls up, you know, gets stuff off, pulls off, Pulls out my phone, dead. I went, you are kidding us. I says, Melanie, my phone's gone. And bear in mind, I've had it less than two months. It was an S6 Galaxy Edge thing. Just like the nicest pictures. Everything, everything about that phone was fantastic. They're all Apple, the, the family and all that. But I just stick with Google and it just... Was lovely. Oh, that's, that is the phone. That's my temporary phone. If anybody heard it, they've given us this little kind of replacement one, and it's the side. it's like a breaking bad phone. Do you know? <laughs> have anyone seen that series? So I'm like, You're kidding? It's and I'm just like, gutted. because I wanted to keep an eye on certain things to make sure that certain events happened, and that's it. You know, I was like, Oh. And that, I know this sounds shallow, shallow, shallow. It spoiled me, kind of. I kept on getting back up and plugging it into the electric, seeing if it would, you know, and it would get warm. You know, the power was going to this kind of phone, but there was nothing happening. And I was like, oh. And I couldn't kind of settle down, couldn't relax. But I had, again, in the end, just give up. Do you know what I mean? Just (laughs) give up, forget it. So, and it rained through the night. Do you know what I mean? To the point where, I think it was about... Two o'clock in the morning, the wife was awake and I was awake. And I was like, because we're right on the kind of edge of these fells, you know, right behind us. And if these fells, landslide slipped, you know what I mean? It would take out this little holiday park. And I'm thinking, "Melly, this is really, it sounds really bad. So we must have nodded off anyway as we woke up and it's still outside biblical. Do you know what I mean? And it was... I got all kind of dressed up for to take the dog for a walk. And honestly, even, like, Gore-Tex this, that, the other. Do you know what I mean? Come back drenched through. Do you know what I mean? It was, I had all these kind of, like, on the Gore-Tex jacket I've got, it's got, like, these waterproof zips and everything. Guaranteed this, that, the other. Nonsense. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, eh, what happened there? So we stayed in on that kind of first day. Do you know what I mean? We kind of stayed, and it was just nice, you know, kind of watching TV, kind of just chilling, doing things. I even took my pen and pad because I wanted to kind of brainstorm my ideas and just, you know, it's nice to kind of do that. So I thought, well, I'll, if I've got no phone, I'll do, I'll do that. Uh, we get to about two o'clock that afternoon and Melanie says, come on, get stir crazy here. Yeah, we'll go out, we'll have a day out. Or even just an hour. So we kind of jumped in the car. <laughs> By the time we got to the car, in, wet. But anyway, we drove down and honestly, it was like, you're talking about four miles and it, it was like as if the earth had just been created. There was waterfalls springing out from everywhere, roads that were, you know, the road was a river. It was, there was rocks strewn everywhere, branches, trees over and it was like it was just then when I was thinking, I could tell Melanie was getting a bit anxious. You know, and the kids were, really couldn't be, but he had his headphones on, <laughs> even when we just drive two miles, he's watching YouTube videos. But I could tell the daughter and the wife were just getting anxious. Keep it keep out of the road, keep me, look, look, look ahead, look ahead. <laughs> She's going on like And honestly, you're having to swerve things. We dropped down into Windermere. And honestly, as it, if it was just horrific for the people that were living there. You know what I mean? We drove in. And you're talking like rivers flowing down the, into the kind of, because all the fells are surrounding Windermere. Do you know what I mean? The whole lakes is almost, Lake District is surrounding Windermere. And there was people standing up to their waist in that garden in water. Do you know what I mean? And it was just through the house and everything. And it was just, you know what I mean? It was horrible even seen on the news. The grown men crying their eyes out. You know, it just happened four or five years ago. And, oh, it was just horrible. We were kind of parked up in Windermere. And, it honestly, man, you couldn't believe how much water we get out. You know, and <laughs> my wife, I just need, I forgot to bring toothpaste. I need toothpaste. you <laughs> just trying to get toothpaste. It was just unreal. We get this one tube of toothpaste everywhere. should shutting. Sending people home. Do you know what I mean? It's so scary. It's dark. It's angry skies. And it's everything like that. So we we get back and I says let's just go home. We'll just go back to the kinda of the apartment or the, the sorry the lodge and we'll just chill out get you know and we'll watch the kinda of, I'm a celebrity and and that'll be great. So we gets back and it never lets up, never lets up right through the night, worse still. And bear in mind this is from the day before. And all you gotta do is step outside, count thirty seconds, and you're ringing wet, ring wet. So I wakes up the next morning and it's still not, this is Sunday morning. It's still five o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep. Wakes up, looks out. I'm thinking, my God, puts the news on the telly. And it's just as if World War Three's kicked off in the lakes. You know, there's just, a devastation. just the devastation. The views that the kind of helicopters are getting of just like flooded areas. And I, I wakes up, I, I think it was about eight o'clock anyways. I wakes up and says, Melanie. I think because we were staying till till the Monday, I says, Melanie, I think we better get home." I says, "Because if we don't, I think I don't even think we'll get home." And that was it. You know what I mean? She was quite happy to kind of miss the day, cancel a day, pack, well, pack, 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 dead quick, and we we're in the car for half nine, heading out. And by that time, Munsey, blue skies and everything, and you're driving round roads, and there's there's water on the roads, but there's just more bricks and debris. You know where there's kind of been these rivers the night before. And we're kind of driving around. And I says, and Windermere is quite a strange area. You can only get in from my, like, the northeast of England over a couple of passes, you know, and windy little windy roads. And I says, I'm going to have to go back over Kirkstone Pass. And you drop down into, I think it's Patterdale, And then you're away along Ullswater Reservoir or Lake. So we get up there and I'm all flying away there. It starts to drop down this pass into kind of Patterdale, And there's a car coming up and he flashes his light, pulls over and says, mate, you're wasting your time going that way," he says. "There's no way on God's green earth you're going to cross what's down there." I went, "Oh God," he says. "Honestly, you'll never get through." He shoots off, and I'm ah. three-point turn on this pass. Do you know what I mean? The steepest out road, like kind of one edge, the other edge. You're kind of away down the valley. So oh, 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 with three-point turn, comes back, and I says, Melanie, there is only three ways in to like Windermere. I says, there's the Keswick route. And I says, you've seen that on the news. And it was, honestly, Keswick was just a no-go area. And from where we were staying, like I say, Allende- not Allendean, so at Windermere, along that r- route, it's all like lakes right on the kind of roadside, you know what I mean? So I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be horrendous that way. We'll go the Kendall way, and then we'll jump on the M- M6 and go home. Right, right, right. So we're flying, and it's, honestly, when you're on these kind of roads, it's just normal, like the dual carriageway around that, and you think, oh, well, don't, you know, get there. Get into Kendall, and this is by probably this time about, say, half ten. As soon as we hit Kendall, to a standstill, and you're jammed in this traffic jam, and you're just weaving slowly round. you know what I mean? Two hours we're in Kendall following this kind of snake of a traffic jam. Two hours, and... We were heading towards this kind of the M6 going up north, you know, like up the north, and then you would kind of pull off for the Newcastle route. And we passed some horrific sights. Do you know what I mean? It was just, they'd been battered, battered beyond all belief. We passed on the the kind of, of, in the centre of the town, the river runs through. There was a car park right next to the river. And on first glance, you look at all these cars and you think, They've just parked them all willy-nilly, really you know, and these probably 30 or 40 cars, you know what I mean? And they're all just kind of just a little bit off and, you know, one's, you know, back to front kind of thing. And then you look closer and all one sides of them, all of them are like battered, battered with like little toffee hammers. And then you see this stain around about two inches from the top of the windscreens. Everyone had this stain and you think, that's where the rivers come up now. Do you know what I mean? And all these, co- all these, I mean, you're talking, there was some, I don't know how much, but there was a few sports cars there that were just kind of wrote off, just like everything in the rivers hit them. Do you know what I mean? Just smashed into them, like rock, logs, rocks, I'm guessing, just furniture drifting down. Do you know what I mean? It was, they were just like, wow, man. Followed this around. Now we drove down this kind of street and every one of them house houses had like a, a kind of two inch, Flexible hoes hanging out of their windows, pumping out water from the house. Do you know what I mean? And there was people crying, there was women crying, blokes crying. We just And you're just like in this snake of a like traffic jam just inching past them. Do you know what I mean? And you just couldn't do anything. You were just stuck there and it was one after the other. Do you know what I mean? Like furniture out. And by the time we got there, kind of our turn off, the roads closed and it was like, I wasn't even bothered to be quite honest. I said, well, well, I I don't know what to do, Melanie. I said, after kind of just seeing that, do you know what I mean? It kind of, it knocks you, to be quite honest. It's just, it's so, like, soul-destroying. So we just turned around, and I said, well, Melanie, I says, the only way I can do it now, I says, everything's blocked to get home. I says, we might be able to kind of get on the M6 and head towards London direction, you know, south, and then drive down that way, two-mile, five-mile, whatever, Find a like a lot, you know, a turn off and come back on ourselves. So right right, we'll do that. Again, another hour in there. Uh, the snake of a road. Again, passing more houses with hose you know like pipes coming out, sucking out water from the basements. And these are picturesque little like Lakeland cottage houses, gorgeous chocolate box scenery, do you know what I mean? Beautiful slate and slate, you know, made up these houses and just wrecked, wrecked. Eventually, we get out of Kendall and we're kind of on this like A road, you know, like heading towards signs or following signs for the kind of the M6 South. We just get to the kind of road about two miles outside of Kendall. It's got tape and barriers over saying blocked. And I was like, Melanie, that's it. Do you know what I mean? I think we're stuck. I'd, I'd, I honestly don't know how to get, you know, there's no other way. I says, the only thing we can do is go back and stay in the 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 lodge where we've stayed. I said, we'll try tomorrow. Well, by that time, no, 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 I want to get home. I want to get home. I want to see me down. I to, everyone's worried. A car in front just drove round these bollards, you know, through the tape and round these bollards and went down this road towards this kind of dual carriageway which would take you on to the M6. And the wife says, he's just done it. Follow him. And I says, Melanie, man, you can't. I says, once we go past these bollards, I says, we're, we're, that's it. I says, we get stuck. We can't go, because it was dual carriageway. You couldn't just jump on the other side of the road and come back and then go to the, the lodge. I says, once we're here, mind you. I says, that's it. Do it, do it, do it. I am like, all right. So I'm drive around this blocked road. Do you know what I mean? Like, And all signs, all don't, don't pass, don't pass, sticky bloody tape, you know, like tape across the road, drove through it all, follow it and then all of a sudden everyone was doing it it was like a mad like sheep were were. just everyone was following everyone and we drove down this dual carriageway and honestly it's like you know apocalyptic it's like there's no one it's deserted you know and it's we passed some sites that were just there was a, a travel lodge hotel on the other side of the road with a shell garage and there was people standing on this island that was the travel lodge and they couldn't get off the travel in the car park of the travel lodge. It was just a sea of water and they were waving. Do you know what I mean? Like, help, help. And everyone's just flying past, you know, and the shell garage was submersed under water. You know, halfway up. And it was just like, gosh, Melanie man, I says, we're done for here. We just carried on this road. And then the kid, I says, up oh, here, I says, it's a mile to the kind of roundabout to get on the M, M6. We just, nothing came in front of it. And we just got to this roundabout and it said M6 North, M6. I said, we'll just jump on North. I said, we'll fly up. So it gets on. And honestly, the minute you get on, it's if like you've left this world, you've left this kind of forgotten world. And everything's just normal. And it was just like, we did it. We did it. <laughs> Nelly, nearly, nearly more so we're travelling up the M6 you know what I mean just to get, get off and I think it's the A68 which takes you through Warwick Bridge and they're kind of on the like heading towards north one of that turn off gets up to it road closed and I mean and this is where now I'm, I'm watching BBC reporters are there from Warwick Bridge I says oh I says bloody closed I says we're going to have to go into Scotland <laughs> We left at half nine. I think now we're talking, we're coming up at 12 o'clock. You know what I mean? We're about an hour, if that, 45 minutes away from the lodge and the normal drive. I said, we're going to have to drive into Scotland, you know, at least up that way, Gala Shields area, to get back. So we carried on on the, M, on the M6 up and we crossed the River Eden. This is like the main river, river that runs eventually through Carlisle. And I am not joking when I say this. We couldn't see when we crossed this this kind of this bridge when we're on this M6. You couldn't see land because of water. It was that much. The back, the river had burst its banks. You couldn't see land in the distance. It was like for miles and miles. This river had broke its banks, and it was just kind of it was a sea. It was, and I says, look at this man. And it was just like we took photographs because it was just like. It was just as if you were crossing the sea. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, I'm, I'm starting to get a... You know what I mean? How do we get home? So we we turned off eventually, and we're heading up to a place called Longtown, which is kind of almost borders of Scotland, man. It's ridiculous how far we had to go. Then we took down, and then we kind of got on this A68 and heading towards Hexham, Corbridge, and then you're in the kind of Newcastle. And we came through Hexham on the dual carriageway, And again, this apocalyptic scene of just like total devastation next to the river, you know, like flooded out, Corbridge flooded out. By this time, we're up, honestly, we're up to kind of five and a half hours of traveling in the car. And we're just tired, frightened. Do you know what I mean? We just want to get home. You know, we are kind of wrecked, totally drained. You know what I mean? Just kind of wanting to get home. Just the things you'd seen, you know what I mean? The kind of... The misery you'd seen on the road. We get, and we kind of get in, and like I say, we're getting the kind of Newcastle area, the Gateshead, Metro Centre Road, and it's just normal. People are going about the normal stuff. And we get, and this is no word of a lie, we get a mile from our house, a mile from our house, that there's a train line there, and it's, it's one of them lines where one barrier comes down on one side and one barrier comes down. On the other side, and it's more like a goods track. You know what I mean? We gets there, a train stops, and it's like we're a mile from our house. Train starts to go over, and it's one of them kind of long goods trains. And I just hear from the back, the dogs win, the dogs wean and it's just like, yep, kindness you kidding and bless it it's been in the car since half nine I think we're talking I don't know three o'clock something like that it's just weighing everywhere over over seats over courts over pillars over you know cardigans everything he couldn't stop and it was just like I mean he's a little dog but he must be his bladder must be the size of him the wife gets out drags him out. He's not on a lead. He hasn't got a collar on because we just got in the car. She's fixing this collar. This train's going past. I'm thinking, my God, man, this is all going to just go hideously. You know, the dog's going to escape, run across the track. Oh man, the things were going through my mind, and all the time, this train's going past, and I am just like, man. she gets on the road, gets a hold of him, gets him also, and I just like this train still. And I just puts me head on the wheel and I just like, what else, man? What else can go wrong? Do you know what I mean? Lost me phone, my phone's broke. We've seen so many people just with their lives wrecked, you know, right into Christmas. You know, it's took us so long, even just to get back into safety, then the whole car is just flooded with like dog urine. And it's everywhere, man. It's just like, oh, we pulled in our house as if, like, we traveled around the world. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, you were just drawn. We didn't know what to do. Do you know what I mean? We ended the car. kind of. I says, Melanie, it's like, what am I going to do with my car? It's going to smell forevermore. You have dog urine. No, 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 no. We got this, you know, that kind of spray stuff. That kind of, it's like a foam. And thank God it doesn't. Do you know what I mean? But what an adventure. Man, all, like I say, all I wanted was like a couple of days just to calm down from this, you know, just trying to get myself up to speed. Maybe, 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 you know, support myself by doing Starship So That's you know, so much on. I just wanted to kind of, ah, right, there's one stage done. Let's see how, you know, let's have a break. Oh, man, it. It's something like we'll never forget. You know what I mean? And I, can't, I haven't even got a picture. The ticket. Phone's broke. And like I say, I've got, you know, it's in with me. Phone's in with getting fixed. And what happens if it doesn't, you know, it's water damage, lad. You know, because it didn't charge up the night before. Everything should have done. You know, it didn't. And I'm thinking, I wonder if it was something up with that. So it's in getting fixed. And I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I, I haven't got a clue, to be quite honest, how that's going to work out. Oh, but man, and now we can.
3: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
4: Look back, you know what I mean? We kinda, we're inviting everyone around. Everyone's coming around, oh, tell us about it, tell us about it. So it's quite, it's certainly different. That, there you go. So that is me adventure. That was me. Or our two few days of total relaxation and recuperation, you know, charging the batteries for the, the Christmas rush.
2: <laughs> there you go. Look after yourselves.